Welcome, First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gatherings. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor, Nathaniel, with this week's message. When Julie and I were living in uh, Texas, we were teaching at a Christian school. and We were there for six years, small Christian school. And during those six years, I coached the varsity boys soccer team. And our, our first year, we, were, we had a perfect record, and it was really exciting. We were 0-13. Um, <laughs> our, it was perfect, perfect. Nothing marred that win column. Um, and over the ensuing six years, we had a modicum of success. We made it to the, the state tournament a couple times, even to the state semifinals. Now remember, this is a very, very small Christian school. Um, but at the end of those six years, Julie and I were preparing to move to Brazil. Um, but our departure date wasn't until September 10th, and so we, uh, we were there, we were still in the area when the new school year started, even though we were not any longer on staff. So a new individual had been hired um, and was going to be the soccer coach, and the superintendent, the director of the school, asked me to do something which, in retrospect, I should never have done. But she said, um, I'm, I'm, you know, this guy's really young and he's new to teaching, he's new to coaching, so would you be willing to just kind of sort of mentor him for the first few weeks of the season while you're still here and help him get his feet wet and started? That was a terrible idea. Um, but because the, it, was, it was a challenge for me because I loved these, these kids so much and some of them I'd been working with for four years and, and it was a challenge for the new coach, it was particularly a challenge for the players because they instinctively looked to me they instinctively listened to me, and they instinctively trusted me. And it was hard for me to be quiet. It was hard for me to be silent and to allow the new coach to take his place and not interfere. Of course it was hard for the new coach. Since I was still around, it was hard for him to institute changes. It was hard for him to gain the trust of the players. So the best thing for this transition would have been for me to leave and simply not be around anymore, which ultimately we did, and Julie and I and Ethan moved far away um, to Brazil. But this morning, we're, we're beginning a short series for the month of January on witness. And back in October, during our fall missions focus, I spoke twice from the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke on this theme. And specifically there, we noticed how Jesus takes those who are his followers and transforms them into his witnesses. And then he commissioned them to live as his witnesses. So as we continue to explore this theme, we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts was, was written by Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And the book of Acts is really a sequel to his Gospel. This morning, we're going to be talking about a great transition. The major change that begins in the first 11 verses of the book of Acts and is completed in the second chapter of Acts. Some of you might get that illusion, musical illusion. In this passage, God is preparing and transitioning the disciples from the physical presence of Jesus to the unseen presence of the Holy Spirit. No less God, no less Emmanuel, but no longer visible with the eyes. 
This is important for us, the church today, because we too live with the presence of the Holy Spirit of God and Christ no longer physically with us. In these verses, God packs in seven specific ways that he calls the disciples into this transition. If you don't have a hard copy Bible this morning and you'd like to borrow one for the rest of the service um, so you can follow along, the ushers are coming back down the aisles now with some copies, and if you just raise your hand, they'll be glad to give you one. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 1. It's a, it's a really well-known passage. Many of you will be familiar with it. Um, we'll be reading the first 11 verses. If you're not familiar with the Bible as a book, um, it's divided into two parts. The Old Testament we call in the New Testament. Acts is in the New Testament, so it's closer to the end of the Bible. You can find it if you look in your table of contents and just turn to that page because we're reading right from chapter 1. Remember, this is Luke writing, so he's writing in the first person here as this, as this book opens. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going. When suddenly, two men in white stood beside them. <laughs> men of Galilee, they said, why, why do you stand staring up into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. For just a moment, I want to go back to the coaching transition with which I began and tell you an earlier part of the story. So when I moved to Baytown, Texas, and I started coaching this team, I took the place of a man who had coached them for 10 years. He was older than I, a big personality, a former American football star at Texas Tech. He played on the offensive line, and he had been a football coach as well as a soccer coach for many years. He's a true Texan. And his voice was Texan, and it was loud, and it was big. And his son was a senior on that team, and his son was the best player. I remember the first few games that I coached with this former coach on the sidelines watching. His voice was so loud. And the boys were so used to his 
timbre and his accent, especially his son, that I had a very difficult time competing to be heard. And it took weeks for the players to learn to listen for my voice instead of Randy's. The first transitional move that we see here in verse 2 is a move of communication. The disciples are used to hearing Jesus speak to them directly and physically, audibly. And now here Luke makes an interesting statement, doesn't he? That Jesus, while near the end of his earthly ministry, gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. We don't know exactly what this means. We don't know the mechanism that was used. But the importance in this passage is not the how, but the event itself. The Holy Spirit is now becoming the mediator of Christ's communication. And Luke is eager to establish this fact. After all, the Holy Spirit is one of Luke's primary themes all the way through the book of Acts. And notice what the Holy Spirit is communicating. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So the Holy Spirit is communicating the words of Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not communicate anything apart from the unity of the Trinity. The Father and the Son speak with and through the Spirit. And for us today, that's important because we have the written Word of God. And it's the Holy Spirit that impresses that word upon our hearts. And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is limited to only speaking these words, but the Holy Spirit always communicates in accordance with Scripture, never against it. Because he always communicates in agreement with the Father and the Son. The Godhead always speaks in unity and in agreement. Luke begins with the communication of the Spirit because everything else is going to flow out of the disciples' commitment to, discernment of, and surrender to what the Spirit says. And this flows logically into the timing of the Spirit. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 4 that they should not take the timing of things into their own hands, right? But they should wait for the Spirit. Doing anything apart from the timing of the Holy Spirit will result in difficulty and potentially failure. And there are two ways, right, that we can fail to follow the timing of the Spirit. This is just logic. The first way is rushing ahead on our own. And this is what the apostles, the disciples were being challenged to not do. Don't just rush out and do this. Wait. I can picture Peter, the disciple, erring in this way, right? Rushing on ahead, wanting to do it without the appropriate timing. Um, the other way that we can ignore maybe the timing of the Spirit or resist it is to take too long to move, to be stagnant, even as the Holy Spirit is moving us or trying to move us. And if I have to choose the category to which I'm more susceptible, the second one would be me, holding back uncertain, unsure, or sometimes just lazy. The point Jesus makes in this transition, though, is that the disciples should learn to do everything according to the Spirit's timing. They need to start looking to Him, listening to Him, waiting for Him, but then moving with Him. Sometimes that's going to mean to wait. Sometimes it's going to mean to go. But they needed to learn to rely upon the Holy Spirit for the timing of what they were to do. The next aspect of this transition is to the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. That might seem a strange thing to say. But Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a promised gift from the Father. I think we believe, we, we, we probably wouldn't articulate it, we wouldn't say this out loud, but there's something in us that lives as though the presence of the Holy Spirit is somehow less than the presence of Jesus in the flesh. We think that obedience would be easier, that discernment would be easier, that the Christian life would be easier if Jesus were with us in the flesh. I don't think that's true. If we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we will see how often the disciples screwed things up and Jesus was right there. We see them make bad decisions. We see them misunderstand his teachings. We see them sin. We see them run away. We see them betray him and reject him. The Father has given the Spirit as a gift. That means he is good and he is great. The Godhead limited Jesus on earth to the presence of his physical body. The Holy Spirit not only is omnipresent, but according to Scripture, he actually lives in and through the church, the people of God. And I'm not saying, please don't hear me say that the Spirit is greater than Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But in, that in God's plan, the Spirit would birth the church with a presence beyond just the physical. God would be present in and with his people everywhere all the time in a new way than he was in the incarnate Christ. The Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. We're not second-class citizens because, oh, we weren't with Jesus in the body like the disciples were. We are inhabited by God himself, the Holy Spirit. He is the great gift that the Father has given his children. Moving on to the fourth transition, when, when Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming, he's also requiring of them submission to the plans of the Spirit. Just as the disciples would walk in obedience to Jesus, so they must walk in obedience to the Spirit. In verse 6, the disciples ask Jesus, because they're getting excited again, right? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now remember, I just said the disciples often got stuff wrong. Here it is again, and this is after the resurrection. So it's as though before the cross, you can kind of forgive the disciples for not understanding things fully, but now Jesus has risen, and they're going right back to the same idea they had before the crucifixion, which was what? Jesus, you're here to reestablish political Israel. You are here, you have come to make us a military power on earth, to throw out the Roman invaders, and to set up our people, our nation, as the empire of the earth. So when they saw Jesus on the cross and when he died, all those hopes were dashed. Now Jesus has risen, and they're like, oh, okay. Who's going to be the greatest military and political leader ever? It's got to be someone who was dead and came back to life. Jesus, now's it, right? Now's it. You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. This is it, right? We're ready. We're ready. The 
maybe the maybe the whole, maybe the disciples heard that phrase that the Holy Spirit was a gift. And then they were convinced, oh, this is a gift that's given to us and we get to use it for our ends and our purposes. They still don't grasp, even though they've seen Christ's death and resurrection, they still don't grasp that his goals are not political or earthly. And so I I know that we often do that. I'm tempted to do this with God often. Rather than say, God, what is your plan? We say, God, bless my plan. Bless my plan. But Jesus' response to them, he doesn't directly rebuke them. And and he doesn't even deny, he doesn't take this, go into this big long thing about Israel not being restored or anything like that. He just says, guys, it's not your business. (laughs) That's not what I'm calling you to. It's not for you to know the day or the time or the hour. That's, forget that. That's not what I'm calling you to. That's not what my plan is. That's not what the plan of the Spirit is. It's not your place to be in control, Jesus says. It's the place of my spirit. It's not for you to know the times, dates, or hours. To us today, we're called to the same submission to the plans and purposes of the Spirit is our timeline, is our future, is our plan. Is is it the Lord's plan that we have discerned and sought him for, or is it our plan that we are demanding that he bless? In his discourse, Jesus turns smoothly and clearly from the political misunderstanding of the disciples to a focus upon the gift of the Spirit and the Spirit's work in the world. And the first point he notes is the power of the Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Not before, not right now, but when the Spirit comes. He is the source of the power of God in the church to carry out the work of God in the world. When the church or individuals within the church try to carry out God's work apart from the power of the Spirit, it won't last. In Brazil, in the the final place we lived in for the last five years we were there, was an apartment on the 11th floor. And um, there was a a particular location that I always looked at as this is my location with Jesus because I would always be the first one up in the home. So there was a love seat. I'd sit in that love seat and there was a lamp um, so that if it was was usually still dark out, I could turn on that lamp and it would illuminate my Bible and I had my time with Jesus there in the morning before anyone else was up. I loved that little spot. My spot had an ottoman to put my feet up on, and then as the sun rose, I could look out over, you know, from the 11th story over um, the view. And every so often, some annoying family member would unplug that lamp and plug something else in in its place. And the, the, the plug, the outlet, was behind the love seat. So it wasn't this like simple thing of switching it. I had to uh, like pull the love seat out, go back there, hands and knees, plug the thing in. It's a great way to start a quiet time with the Lord. And really, this would make me far more bitter than it should have. But I'd, get, I'd, I'd be out there, get ready to start, have my cup of coffee. I'd sit down, um, set it there, open Bible, turn on the light. Ethan, Micah, Julie, who was it, you know, running through my mind. 
Now, this is a very, very simple illustration, right? Um, if the lamp was not plugged in, how could it function as it was intended to function? It's not going to eliminate anything if it doesn't have a power beyond itself. Um, the, the lamp itself is only a conduit. It does not make the light. It is a conduit of the power that produces the light. We do not make the light. We do not produce the power. We are a conduit as individuals and as the church. We are a conduit for the power of the Holy Spirit. And so often we try to do things in our own power. Good things. I'm not suggesting we're trying to do bad things. We're trying to do good things. Sometimes even ministry or outreach. But it's not surrendered to the Holy Spirit, to his timing, to his power. It's just our plans, our desires, and we're trying to go ahead with it. And then when it doesn't work, we're left wondering why. And this brings us finally to what the plans of the Spirit are. And in some ways, this is the focal point of the sermon this morning. What is the work that the Spirit will perform on earth that he longs to do through the people of God? So in other words, for what is he empowering the church? I'm not suggesting, before I say what this is, I'm not suggesting that this is the only power or the only purpose of the Holy Spirit on earth. But when Jesus is transitioning his disciples away from dependence on his physical presence and toward dependence upon the unseen Holy Spirit, this is how he defines the primary work of the Spirit. You will receive power for a specific purpose. What is it? You will be my witnesses. Just as the lamp by my sofa receives the power of electricity for the purpose of illuminating the environment around it, so the disciples will receive the power of the Spirit to be witnesses of and for Jesus. And this theme is repeated over and over and over in Acts. The Spirit creates, empowers, and impels fruitful witnesses of and for Jesus to the world. You will be my witnesses, Jesus tells them. That's wonderfully intimate and personal. You will be my witnesses. Because you understand, up until this point, Jesus had been his own primary witness on earth. There were times where he had invited the disciples into short journeys. Remember, he, would send out, he sent out the 72, he sent out the 12 at different times, and it, those were sort of like dress rehearsals. Right? He's like, okay, now, you've watched me, you've seen me, now you go out and you preach the kingdom of God, and you're going to have power, you're going to heal the sick, and, 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 and you're going to do miracles in my name. But the primary actor has been Jesus, right? He's, he's the one that the disciples are following. He's the one that they're watching. He's the one doing the bulk of the preaching, teaching, and miracles. So it can be comfortable, right, when we settle into a, uh, a state in which someone else is always doing the work and we're just watching. But now, Jesus is communicating to the disciples that in this great transition that's coming, you 
You, church, you are going to be my witnesses. Now, he's already been clear that that is not going to happen under their own power. But you are going to be the conduit now for this witness. Brothers and sisters, this calling for the church has not changed. It's a restatement of the Great Commission that we know so well from Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We can sum that up as saying, be my witnesses. If you're searching to understand the primary purpose that God has for you as an individual, um, the primary purpose of the church corporately, it's this, to be witnesses of Christ. And this is what our vision statement at First Friends Church tries to capture in saying that as First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. You've heard me ask this question before, but what does a witness do? A witness sees, hears, and understands something. They experience something. And then they share what they've experienced with others who have not had yet that same experience. So these men and women that are watching Jesus go up into heaven, they had seen, lived, and experienced his transformative presence. And now they, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, are going to be the ones to take the reality of their experience of the resurrection of Jesus to the world. And that's what the book of Acts is about. And boy, does the gospel explode over the known world in a matter of just a few decades. Because of the power of the Spirit in the church and the church surrendered to his will and his work of witness. We have been given the power of the Spirit to be witnesses for Christ in the world. Now for some, it may seem that this passage ends on a downer. Jesus ascends into heaven, a cloud receives him out of their sight. Oh no, he's gone. But this cloud is the image of the Shekinah glory of God. The cloud that descended over Mount Sinai, the cloud that covered and entered the tabernacle, the cloud that came down over the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was up there with Peter, James, and John. God is showing the disciples, the glorification of Jesus. If there's any doubt, you need to understand, disciples, Jesus is my son. Jesus is God. And from the time that Jesus was resurrected until this moment in Acts, when he ascends back into heaven, we're told by, by Luke that that was a period of approximately 40 days. And he wasn't with his disciples all the time during those 40 days. He kind of came and went. He would appear, remember, he just appeared in their midst in the upper room where Thomas is there, and then and he tells Thomas to put his finger in, his, in the nail holes and in, in his side. And, and so he's gone, and he comes, and he appears to them on the shores of Lake Galilee, you know, of the Sea of Galilee, and he, he invites them to have breakfast with him. So he's not with them through this timeline consistently every minute as he had been before. So as Jesus goes up now, they're staring, looking into the sky, and they're thinking, when's he coming back? Are we going to see him, you know, a little bit later today? Um, maybe we'll just wait here a little bit longer. Maybe he'll reappear. Maybe this is just an object lesson of some sort. This time, though, it was different. This time, it was permanent. And this time, angels appeared and told them clearly that Jesus would come back one more time 
someday, but it wasn't going to be immediately, and it wasn't going to be during their lifetime. They needed to be changed in their perspective. In other words, don't just stand here looking up, expecting the bodily Jesus. Now, expect the Holy Spirit. And in closing this way, by emphasizing the absence of the body of Christ, he emphasizes the coming presence of the Holy Spirit who will be Emmanuel, God with them, just as Jesus was Emmanuel, God with them. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the lifeblood of the church. He's our communication. We move in his timing. He's a profoundly great gift. His plans guide the church. His power moves us to effective witness of Jesus to the world, and his presence gives us permanent access to God because he is God. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not lesser. As I said earlier, he's not a consolation gift. He is the presence of God to his children and to his church. So we can ask ourselves that same foundational question. Are we submitted and surrendered to God? Are we in submission to the Word of God through His Spirit? Are we surrendered to His timing? To, do we acknowledge, and not just acknowledge, but receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the goodness of God? That his plans are supreme, and are we submitted to the purpose that he empowers? Are we witnesses? The Holy Spirit has been given to empower witness. That's not the only thing he empowers, but we're told here that that is one of the primary purposes of his power in the church. Will we flow in his power to accomplish his purpose? So I want to go back to that lamp illustration for a moment. And I want to, I know this is really stupid, but imagine that I expect this lamp to play baseball. So when I plug in the lamp and it just sits there glowing brightly, I'm disappointed and upset. I wanted you to play baseball. I wanted you to take a good swing on your own. I'll even toss the ball to you. Let's play baseball. Can I blame the lamp for its failure to make a hit, to get a hit? Can I blame the lamp, or, or, or here's a better question, can I blame the electrical current for the fact that the lamp is not playing baseball? No. Why? Because that's not its purpose. So I, I just want to suggest this. Maybe we don't experience or know the power of the Spirit because we have refused to engage in what the Spirit is doing and how the Spirit is leading. So when we, quote, plug into the Spirit, we're wanting to do our own thing and our own plans, but we just want the Holy Spirit to give us the power to do it. But we don't experience it because we're not doing what the Spirit is doing or following where the Spirit is leading 
or surrendered to the plans and the purpose of the Spirit. And I don't, I don't imply with that that everything that the Spirit empowers will be easy. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I just want us to ask ourselves and ask ourselves before the Lord, Lord, am, am, I, am I with you? He has promised to be with us, but are we with him? And specifically, Holy Spirit, you're coming in power, impelled witness. And we're going to get there in, in two weeks. Two weeks from today, we're going to look at the arrival of the Holy Spirit in the church. And we're going to see that the first and primary thing that the Holy Spirit did upon its arrival was to spark witness and to bring over 3,000 new souls into the kingdom and family of God in one day. But it was done through the witness of the disciples, empowered by the Spirit. So there's an invitation here for us as a church, individuals and corporately, to align ourselves, to open ourselves to what the Spirit is doing in being an empowering witness whether it's to neighbors, whether it's to family members, whether it's to co-workers, whether it's to people with whom we come in contact through our sports ministry here, whether it's just friends, acquaintances, or perhaps people you may only see one in your, once in your life at the grocery store or a checkout clerk somewhere. Are we flowing in the power of the Spirit who empowers witness? Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord together in song. The Lord who has given us himself as the Spirit to live in us, to empower his purposes in and through us, to make us witnesses of Jesus Christ. As we worship, the altars are open. Come and worship. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m. and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week.